All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Janie. And uh, last week, we got to enjoy Carl Martin, who is a preacher from Scotland, from Edinburgh, and he uh, gave the sermon last Sunday. If you didn't hear it, it's well worth going back and catching it online. And he also is our coach. He's a coach to our staff. We've had a relationship with him as our consultant, and it's really, it's amazing. And this last week, Carl pushed on us a bit, and he talked about the church as a family, and my ears immediately perked up, because that's my favorite picture of the family and he said and looking us in the eye he said hey listen you want staff you got a growing staff you know you're adding people to the staff and whenever you add a new person to the staff it changes the dynamic of the family he said you want staff you need to live this out you need to be a family to each other and we all were like oh yes sir okay and he's i'm gonna hold you accountable so I'm telling you and putting you on notice that you can expect our staff to continue to learn how to love each other and to operate like family so that we can then say to the rest of our family, let's do the same thing. The church is a family. I like to think of the church as a family of families. We have our natural born family. You can think of that as a little circle, but then we have this spiritual family. And it works best if we embed our natural-born families inside the wider spiritual family because we can't do this alone. We need each other. And the nuclear family, without the support of the wider family, it's very difficult. We're a family. We're a family made up of families. I want you to think about this idea of the relationships that happen within this family. And uh, over here, I have some billiard balls, and I also have some grapes. A couple different options. We could, in our relationships, be like these billiard balls. And someone hits the cue ball, and it bangs into the other balls, and they all scatter and go off to their corner pockets, and... They just bounce off of each other. We could be a family, a church that's like billiard balls. But a more appropriate metaphor is we could be a church of grapes. And when you think about grapes, you know they're they're tasty and they're and they're 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 kind of squishy when they're next to each other, you know, and they, they kind of huddle together when they bounce off each other. In fact, when you begin to um, squeeze these grapes together, when their lives intersect with one another, the juice flows out. And, and then, you know, a, a lady in Italy, she gets in the bin and she starts, you know, stomping on those grapes. And they ferment. <laughs> they age well. And out of that comes a fine wine which leads us to the Lord's table. We celebrate every week. We have the bread, which represents the body of Christ broken for us, and we have the wine, in our case, the grape juice, that represents his blood shed for us. And so the metaphor is not billiard balls, but it's grapes together. The fact of the matter is this is important because Frankly, let's be honest, a lot of us are lonely. 
or have episodes of loneliness or have a longing for better relationships. And this started for me 20-something years ago when I first read Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone, where he documented that over a course of a 25-year period that our connections were fragmenting. We were becoming more like billiard balls than we were like grapes. In our families, we were isolated. With our friends, we were increasingly disconnected. With our, even our neighbors, that's the title of the book. We're bowling more, but we're in leagues less. Bowling alone. We live in the most hyper-individualistic culture ever in the history of humanity. It's the air that we breathe. It's sort of something that continually influences and impacts us. And it causes us to become more like a billiard ball than a grape together. There's a toll that it's taking on us. And it's getting worse, actually. There's this massive study, Cigna, the health organization, they they did a study of 20,000 Americans, and they used the UCLA loneliness scale. It's a tool that's widely used to sort of measure how people feel about their social connections and social capital. And in this survey, they rate people from a score of 20 all the way up to 80. The lower the score, the less lonely. They discovered that the national average in America is 44, which means that a lot of people in America are lonely, experience some loneliness. They said that loneliness, from an emotional standpoint, has the same impact on mortality as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Loneliness and its emotional toll, it is greater than obesity. It's a real health crisis, and I want to say that the church exists for many reasons, but one of its reasons is to alleviate loneliness. Are we a church of billiard balls or are we a church of grapes? You know, it's funny because uh, I've done a lot of research in the last couple of weeks on loneliness. I've read a lot about loneliness. And uh, you know how Google tracks you and Facebook tracks you. And so I'm reading the news the other day And in the news scroll, up comes an ad, and it caught my eye. This is amazing. It says scientists now have discovered a pill that will alleviate loneliness. And you know what I did? Oh, I clicked on that ad, and I bought a lifetime supply of anti-loneliness pills. Because that's what you do. You click on ads, right? But that's a little creepy how much they knew I'm going to get phone calls. Bill, sounds like you're kind of lonely. (laughs) You know what the study discovered, though, is that as you move younger in the age cohorts, the loneliness perception goes higher. Our younger generations are growing up in a world where it is increasingly more difficult not to feel disconnected. And we may say, oh, well, Social media is to blame, and the study said, no, social media is not a predictor of loneliness. But here's the caveat. If we're using social media in order to connect with our friends and other people, 
and that leads to a meaningful connection, then it's not a predictor of loneliness. But if social media is part of our life where we just look at everyone's fabulous vacations and their amazing fashion and how wonderful their lives are and how well-connected they are, and if we just keep scrolling through without a purpose, yeah, that'll make you feel really lonely. It's how we use this wonderful technology that can connect us together. So here's the bottom line for me. The bottom line from this study, as I read through it, is they said the antidote to loneliness is regular and meaningful in-person connections. My hope this morning is that we'll be encouraged as a church of grapes to mix it up, to take the risk to reach out and to establish increasing, regular, and meaningful in-person connections with one another. So that leads me to the text. I, 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 uh, I want you to take your Bibles, if you've got them, turn to Acts chapter 2. And I don't want to be simplistic about loneliness. I know that it's complex. There's all sorts of reasons why we go through seasons where we wish our friendships were better and deeper. Acts chapter 2 is the very beginning of these first Jesus followers. We actually can discover their DNA. We can go back to the very beginning and ask the question, what, what, what were these followers like? What characterized them? How did they live with one another? And that DNA is here in our River Church family. It's there, and we need to strengthen it and discover it and highlight it. Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 42, and you'll see right above it that the church was growing by leaps and bounds. In fact, 3,000 people had been added to the church. And so what did they do? What were they like? What was their DNA? And I want to suggest there were four healthy, intentional practices of those early Jesus followers. Here they are. They devoted, they were committed, they were intentional to the apostles' teaching, that's one, and to fellowship, that's two, to the breaking of bread, that's three, and to prayer, there's the four. And then look at the results. And these results are not prescriptive, or uh, they're, they're descriptive of what was happening. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Four intentional healthy practices of a church that taps into that early DNA. Teaching and fellowship, breaking bread, and prayer. And then out of that, there's awe and wonder at God's working. It's so exciting to hear the stories of the way God is working in our midst. The believers were together. They were together. They were together in the temple and in homes. 
And there was generosity. Todd talked all about that. There's this, this financial generosity, but there's also when, when we're in trouble, when we're in crisis, when we have a health situation. I've experienced that in my own family. The river runs to be present for each other, to offer care and help. And there's God-directed, there's God-directed celebration, and I'm so grateful for Jasmine and Godwin coming onto our team, and they are committed to teaching us how to be a worshiping community, to be God-directed. And this church had a good reputation in the community. People outside, as we rub shoulders, they say, yeah, there's something that, that smells sweet about the River Church. And new friends were welcomed frequently into this body of believers. New folks, hey, there's room for you. So I want to bring it down to our church. And I want to think about our homes and our tables. Because there's all sorts of different ways that we can think about what the church is. And there's different models. There's different metaphors. And one of the things that this whole dynamic right here creates is it's easy to kind of think about the church as a movie theater, you know, where, where you watch at the theater and maybe you wish the seats would recline and in the dark you could eat popcorn, you know, and, and then watch, you know, kind of be spectators over here. Or, or maybe, you know, Super Bowls next weekend. And, you know, the other metaphor is in a, in a football game, there's like 50,000 fans in the stands in desperate need of exercise watching 24 players in desperate need of rest, Right? Yeah, I'm so glad we hired those pastors so they can work for us. At the river, we understand, no, that's not a good metaphor for us. That's not the way we want it to operate. What's happening right here is, is only one small slice of the big picture of what the river church is all about. Or we could think of the church as a shopping mall. Like, you know, you go to Delamo and, and, and you're, you're rushing through the hallways and everyone's got their bags and they're going to all their stores because they have things they want to shop. And so we, we church shop and we find the church that offers us the goods and services that we really want. And, and so there's a lot of comparison. And, and no, that's not part of the DNA of that early church. Or a buffet line, you know? It's like, oh, this church has this nice little thing, and, and this church has this little thing. So then, in our hyper-individualistic age, we become consummate consumers of spiritual goods and services. And that's not what this early church was all about. In fact, it, 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 it hurts us to move in this way. So the metaphor that's used more often than any other is about the church. The metaphor from the beginning of scriptures to the end, and particularly the writer of a lot of the letters, Paul, it's church as family. All of the family language is just all through the scripture. We're a family together. Now, the model of the church as a family has some limitations because sometimes when families have trouble, what they do is they retreat behind their closed doors, they shut the door, and nobody outside knows the, the, the pain and the suffering that's happening behind those closed doors because, because we're afraid. Or, or sometimes churches like families, you know, it's, it's like, oh, yeah, we're family. You know, we, we're best friends, and nobody else can break into that family. You know, it's kind of like, 
you know, us inform uh, uh, us for no more. You know, like like we 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 just we hold our relationship so tight that someone comes into our midst and says, "I have no idea how to get connected to that place because we're so tight." That can be a problem. Or we become a church that that looks at the culture out there. You know, oh, the culture's bad. Let's circle the wagons and and protect ourselves from the evil culture out there. No, that, that, that was not the mindset and the posture of this early church at all. They were a family. So I want to suggest that our language is really important. And whenever I have the opportunity to say this, I'm going to say this. When we say, are you going to church this weekend? We're using imprecise language that focuses too much on a building or a place. Are, are you going to the north or are you going to the beach? Are you going to church? And of course, I understand why we use that language, but friends, we never go to church. We are the church. So, are you going to join in with a gathering that happens to meet on the beach? That's more precise language. You understand what I'm saying? Because this word that is used, this gathering. It's ecclesia. The word we translate church, it's ecclesia. It never refers to a building. It always refers to the coming together of a group of Jesus followers for the four healthy intentional practices, for teaching, and that's part of what we're doing right now, for fellowship, for breaking of the bread, and for prayer. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, to koinonia, to in-person connection. They committed themselves to being grapes with one another and in intermingling their lives with one another. So what does this word fellowship or koinonia mean? It, it means that we're growing in our relationship with Christ and growing in our relationship with one another. We oftentimes find ourselves like billiard balls, but we're moving toward becoming softer like Grapes. It, it refers often to this koinonia, this fellowship. It refers to even a commitment that's like marriage. It's, it's you know, it's that, that committed to one another. Like we're in it together through thick and thin when it's tough and when it's great. Or a commitment like a family. That's why this metaphor is used. Do you know that we are called brothers and sisters more than any other descriptive term in the scriptures. We're family. We are brothers and sisters. In fact, Jesus even calls us his brother and sisters. And we have one father, the God who we worship, who will never let us go. So there's intimacy. There's vulnerability. There's sharing. There's participation. There's giving and receiving. And that includes money. We give money to each other, not just to the church. And it includes reaching out with generosity and sharing meals and inviting them into our homes, caring for one another when they can't care for themselves. There's unity. There's meeting real needs. There's pulling people together. All of this is what's described as our common life. The church, it's our common life together. And being in this room is one important but one very small part of it. And so our language, when we talk about the church, and we only refer to the beach and to the north, we've missed 98% uh, of Todd's pie chart. 
in terms of our relationships and what happens outside of this space in our connections. So here's, here's my definition of a church. We are an authentic, life-transforming, permeable community where people are intimately connected together as friends under the leadership of Christ, launched to serve the world. And as I, I, I wind this down, I want, I, want to, I want to get our focus on verse 46. It says that they, they gathered regularly in the temple and also in their homes. The temple and their homes. Now, the temple is not there anymore, but those early believers used space in, 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 the, in the temple surroundings to keep meeting together and hear from the apostles and for them to worship and pray for one another and stay connected. The, the big temple and the small homes temple and homes and we kind of follow that model we we gather together in a larger gathering like this where we don't know everyone in the room and we're not expected to know everyone in the room but I'll bet if I ask Lauren Olson she could give everybody's name that's in this room she always she always had that ability We meet with a group larger than ourselves, larger than our little group, larger than our family, and the synergy of that being part of something bigger than ourselves helps us and moves us along. So the big is a high value, but they also met in smaller groups. For them, it was in their homes. And Todd said, hey, the river's history has been in your homes, under your roofs, and around your tables breaking bread. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts in their homes. I want to just focus for a bit on our homes and what happens in our homes. I want to suggest that your home is a cathedral. When you gather your family together and you turn your attention to say thank you to God, for his supply in your life, your, your, your home is a cathedral. It's a church every bit as significant as what is happening here. And your table, your table in your home, however humble or magnificent that table is in your home, it's an altar. It's an altar where sacrifices can be made, where you can break bread and and celebrate the Lord's dying and rising again, his body and his blood, when you gather for a meal with your family, when you invite other people in. Your home is a tabernacle, and your table is an altar. And really, you know, two ways that that we've sort of constructed here to at least help facilitate this happening. One is grounded groups, and we meet periodically through the year in smaller groups we call grounded groups, and really they follow the four healthy intentional practices. They get together for teaching, you know, we usually discuss the sermon in ways we can't do it in this large group, but we push on it, we ask questions, we clarify, we make application. And then secondly, koinonia, fellowship. They were together. they we, we, we open up our lives to one another, and this is the place where we get to know each other where we can connect with a smaller group and call each other friends. They broke bread together. Grounded groups always include food. You know, there's just something about being around a table, being in a room that has some food 
It opens up a relationship. It's a holy, sacred time. And then fourth is prayer. We send each other out with prayer, which includes how are we going to help meet each other's needs and the needs of the world. Grounded groups are incredibly simple, but they're they're the way you take the big and you help people get connected. Intentional, regular, meaningful, in-person connections. And I want to give another one. Here's another new initiative that is growing up out of the river, and we call it River of Life Cares. And the church exists to help alleviate loneliness. And there are some times when we're in a personal journey where we need someone to talk to. We need someone that cares. We need someone who will listen to us and not judge us or shame us. We need someone who would hold our story in complete confidence so that there's safety and there's a place for someone, not forever, but in a, in a short-term journey to walk with us one-on-one so that we could talk and share and they could pray and guide and encourage. Michelle Malura is a point person on that team. You can talk to any of the pastors. You can talk to Michelle. Will you just raise your hand real quick? You could talk to Michelle. You can come on our webpage. And we can help you in a very confidential way get connected to a friend for one-on-one spiritual friendship. It's a beautiful initiative. And some of you, God is going to call you to be part of that team, to be one of those spiritual friends who's a, who's a gifted listener can offer care. Here's, here's the bottom line for me. Can we increase and multiply in-person, meaningful, regular connections. For some of you, it's going to take a little courage getting out of your comfort zone to say, I'm going to invest. I'm going to connect. I'm going to ask. We'll go to coffee. We'll get in a small group. We'll study the Bible together. We'll, we'll, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reach out to River of Life Cares, and I'm going to get involved in a, in a safe conversation. I'm just going to call that friend. And for all of us, many say, oh, I, I'm, I'm pretty well connected. Are our friendships permeable? Is there room for another person in that cluster? So I'm going to ask James if he would come and just transition us to communion and an opportunity to kind of reflect about what can happen around this particular table. Thanks so much. Uh, and it's, it's really, I think, significant that the center um, of, of our worship, when we do gather together, has to do with going to the Lord's table. It's, it's a, in our case, it's a kind of a ritual meal. It's symbolic. It's not a full-blown meal. You're not going to get a lot of calories out of that piece of bread and dipping it in the grape juice. But when Jesus had this, um, set this up with his disciples and established it as something that is to be practiced and repeated in memory um, of, of him and what his life meant, it clusters the church like grapes around 
remembering Christ. So it's not just hanging out and feeling good that we're known, which it certainly uh, is that. It's so much more in that we remember that those relationships and our connection is is rooted in that which is ultimate, that which is the most significant, um, namely a relationship with God. And I just wanted to, before we run to the communion table real quickly, just give a second. Uh, I love to do this in my classes, which is ask for some response, just a moment to say, hey, what have you experienced in this realm uh, that is in community, under the, under the roof, at the table with somebody, or with a community, uh, maybe in the River Church, maybe elsewhere? Have you had an experience or a time where God just really ministered to you through people, and you were able to experience that love um, in a real tangible way. Anyone want to share? Just You don't have to. There, maybe there's no one, but if someone has an, a story, a uh, short story. <laughs> uh, oh, yes, please. Uh, sure, yeah, I think. Let's see how far we go. See how the cord stretches here. We're doing good. Hi, I'm Debbie Jones, and um, six years ago I had a cancer diagnosis that was quite frightening, and um, when that happens, your head kind of spins, and you're not quite sure where to, you know, find comfort. And um, I was truly amazed by the way our church kind of rallied around my anxiety and um, and prayed and provided support. And um, and in turns from that experience, I was able to learn how to give back to others that may have similar experiences. And so I found myself you know, talking with others that might have a similar diagnosis. And I took what I learned and the prayers that I received, and I was able to give those prayers and those ex- my experience back in a way that I had hoped would minister to others. So I wanted to thank the church for teaching me that. Thank you. Beautiful, yes. Not alone. Goes, goes so far. Jazz, come on now. Hi, Jazz. Uh, my name is Jazz. Hey, and I want to apologize in advance in case like there's someone's name that I leave off or something like that. But as Bill was speaking, I was thinking about um, just some people sitting right here in this room who've kind of filled that gap. Because as a younger single man, you experience life one way. And as an older single man, you begin to experience life a little differently. And it can actually be a little more lonely. But it is what it is, and I've had people step in to kind of like um, go to bat for me, you know, against Satan. And as Bill was speaking, I was just writing down some names of people I saw in this room. And I don't know if you guys know the DePauz, Margaret and David DePauz, but I've had, unfortunately, like four operations, two hip replacements, two knee replacements. And I've lived with them all four times. Those are people who really served like crazy. But not only them, the Kamais, my Bible study leaders, my ground group leaders, they're people who've invited me into their lives. Todd's brother, Dave Wendorf, I don't know if you guys know him, but a phenomenal guy. It's so funny because he's always invited me into their family. And even this past Christmas Eve, I was with my family back east, but he calls me like at six, 8 o'clock there, 6 o'clock here, Jazz, what are you doing? And I said, man, I'm just enjoying myself. He's like, well, come on over. I said, I can't. He was like, Jazz, what are you doing? You better come over. I was like, actually, I'm back east with my family. He was like, all right. But he checked up on me Christmas Eve to make sure I would not be alone. That's what you call a real brother, you guys. But I was also thinking, as I look at the Davidsons, I spent Thanksgiving with them in 1997 as well as in 2000. And these were Bill's in-laws. And Bill and Cynthia had me spend 
Easter with them. Sorry, I remember everything. It's kind of scary. I know. I remember everything. 1996, I spent Easter with them, you know, and then he wanted to bring them into his in-laws' families. But um, in addition to that, you guys, Ed Lasseter and Millie have just been a huge blessing. He, they're kind of like the grandparents of the church, you know. <laughs> they just always watch over everyone. And there's one thing I'll tell you guys about that was, you know, pretty significant. And I don't want to embarrass them, but I will share about this. I don't spend like gobs of time, time with the Hirschbergers. But one time I stood up here and I shared that I was with one of the guys that I disciple. He's like 18 years younger. And I said, Peter, man, if I grow old and I'm not married and I'm alone, promise me that you and your wife will take care of me in case I don't have any family around. And he looked and he said, Jazz, we'll take care of you. And I shared it up here, and I was almost in tears. After church, Gary Hirschberger comes outside, and he says, Jazz, I want to let you know, if anything happens to you and people need to take care of you, Heather and I will take care of you. And a tear was falling down his face. He hugged me, and he walked off. And I said, yep, that's the Hirschbergers. So thanks, you guys, for letting me share. But there you go. That's so beautiful. Man, I, I, now, we, now we've opened up, like the beautiful Pandora's box of sharing. And we're gonna, we do have a time thing going on here. So as we transition into communion, I wanted to just selfishly, while I have the microphone, share something. And Bill, you started us off by putting the church on notice that one of the things as a staff, it's so easy to talk and preach. And it's not that easy, but it's kind of easy to say, here's what y'all need to be doing. It's a whole other thing when you get in the mess of leading a church to say we as a staff need to be one another and just as a story when uh almost a year ago a little less when we first became foster parents and it was our second weekend some of you remember our, our first placement these beautiful beautiful little girls came from a very hard place and behaviorally in every other way it was the most significant challenge i've ever experienced in my life and bray and i and I, we have a staff meeting every wednesday different kind of staff meetings and I remember I, I wasn't able to go to it for a, a couple of weeks, and I show up, and I say, hey, everyone, I know you have a long agenda, things you need to talk about. I just need to share for a minute. And then I just, I remember driving, think, as I was heading there, thinking, where can I go right now? Where can I go? Because Bray and I were kind of ping-ponging off each other, like holding each other up, and we weren't able to keep doing that that day. And I, I remember I need to go to the staff meeting, and I need to just share and I remember and y'all, some of you remember that I just broke down I, I snot cried you know and you're just like <laughs> and they just listened the whole staff meeting was the agenda was thrown out because they go we want to listen and care and love and so I just want to say like we're going to tend to that garden we're going to make sure that we don't let weeds grow in that as a, as a, from the internal cores of the church to the beautiful periphery of the church but I just want to testify to say it's so true that you experience God's love in the context of relationships so often. And so, thank you, River Church. And we're going to now, let's get some tunes going here. Let's worship God through music. Continue to worship God through music. And um, we will invite you, as you feel led, to go ahead, um, head to one of the tables, take some bread, dip it in the grape juice, and keep in mind that metaphor, those billiard balls or those delicious clusters of grapes. And 
we want to move more in the direction by the power of God into those cluster of grapes uh, moment by moment. So thanks for the reminder, Bill. Thanks for the worship team. And Lord, we go to the table now. Jesus, we thank you that you gave your body, you poured out your blood, your life, that we might have life and be eternally connected. That loneliness, thou shalt die. And the encompassing power of the cross. Thank you, Jesus. We do this as your followers. Amen.